with that said, I want to dive in today. I don't want to take any more time up because uh, I have a, a message in our series, Shoulders of Giants, um, as well. Again, I want to, we want to have some time to share about one child and the incredible uh, opportunity we have today to partner uh, with them. Uh, but we are in part three of our series, Shoulders of Giants, which the first week, if you were not here, we talked uh, about the, the woman, uh, Sarah. If you're new to Catalyst, this series, we're looking at different women of Scripture, uh, women of faith, uh, really giants of our faith. In the first week, we discussed Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Uh, then the second week, we looked uh, last week at Ruth. Uh, and then today, we're going to be looking at the life of Rahab. Rahab is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, Rahab is only one of two women mentioned in the hall of faith in Scripture. The other woman is Sarah. Uh, secondly, Rahab is the first Gentile or non-Jewish woman to come into a relationship with God in Scripture. Uh, thirdly, Rahab is commonly referred to by her vocation, and her vocation made her stand out then, uh, even it does now in Scripture. She is commonly referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Uh, that was her occupation. It was what she was uh, involved in. In fact, even in the time that we see in Scripture that God does incredible things in and through her life. And I love the fact Rahab's story because Rahab's story is a reminder um, that God does not need you to meet a certain degree of moral standard uh, to somehow work through your life or in your life. And that God's acceptance of you and love of you has nothing to do with your righteousness. We are righteous because of our faith in Jesus. Can we get amen? That's the good news of the gospel. That it's not that, 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 that you have to somehow get to a certain standard to be accepted by God, but that God accepts you, and we simply turn to him. We see that in the life of Rahab. In fact, even first service, somebody came to me brand new, and they, they were saying how that message of grace uh, that message of God's love was profound. And may we never lose sight of that church. May we never lose sight of what this church is founded upon, which is Jesus Christ himself. Can we get amen? amen. Uh, okay, sorry, I'm a little fired up today. So you got to give me some feedback at 11 o'clock. Come on, you're 11 o'clock. You slept in a little bit longer. Come on. You got a little more. You got that third cup of coffee. Some of you, your fifth cup of coffee. Come on. Uh, we're going to look today at the life of Rahab, and uh, before we dive in, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the, your word. It's truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, we pray that as we open up, God, you would speak to us today. God, we just uh, we love you, and we honor you, and we worship you, and I pray that you would speak to us today as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to read some scripture. Joshua 2, verse 1, we're going to start. Uh, it says this, that Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Shittim. Didn't curse. Shittim. It's a place. Don't look at me holy. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. What's intriguing is throughout scripture, they'll refer to Rahab uh, by her occupation, which was looked down upon. It reminds me that so often the enemy and sometimes even people want to define you by your worst mistakes. But I love the grace of God because he does not define you by your worst mistakes. He defines you by his grace. And we see, so, so Rahab, they, they come into Rahab's home. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king sent the message to Rahab, bring out the men that have come to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and she had hidden them, a hidden room that she had in her home. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk when it was 
uh, when, they, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them. You may catch up with them. So in other words, Rahab uh, does not tell the whole truth to the king uh, because, because the penalty of treason in Jericho was death. So it says here in verse 6, she had taken them up to the roof uh, and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the, to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down at night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know the Lord God has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen upon us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord had dried up the water on the Red Sea. We had come out of Egypt and what had been done at Sihon of Og and the two kings of the Amorites, east of Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When he heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is the God above and on this earth below. Here in this moment is where Rahab declares her commitment, her loyalty uh, to the God of heaven in front of these two Israelite men. And I want to look at three uh, thoughts, three applications from this passage from the life of Rahab. And here's the first one, if you're taking notes. Uh, it's that we need to, to experience, to see God do incredible things in our life as we see in the life of Rahab. We need to allow God to redeem our past. What's intriguing is, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that these two Israelite men, they, they could have gone anywhere. They could have gone into anyone's home. They could have gone into any coffee shop, any restaurant, down any street, uh, into any venue. But they happened to go in the house of a prostitute. And I think in this moment, it's God, uh, God knew what he was doing. He sent these two men specifically into this home because I think in this moment, he wanted to communicate to his people that because in that culture, Things were very much rule-driven, law-driven, that you somehow had to meet a certain standard in order to be accepted, that, that you had to meet a certain standard to hold a certain position in culture. And I think even in this moment, before Christ ever even came, God was communicating, communicating his grace and love. I think in heaven he was like, hey, hey, watch this. Watch this, angels. I'm going to send these two men of God to the house of a prostitute. And catch this. I'm going to work the life of a prostitute. Now, mind you, that was her current occupation. It wasn't like, man, that was like, you know, her past 10 years ago. That was like the night before. And I think it's a reminder for all of us. Aren't you glad that even in the midst of our sin, as Paul said in Romans 5, 8, that God loved us. He demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Can I tell you, God loves you right where you are. I am preaching better than y'all responding, but that's okay because that was a good truth. Catch this. God loves you in your sin. Did you know that? That at your worst place, your worst thoughts, the worst thing you ever did, when you wanted nothing to do with God, when you were even opposed to the ways of God, he loves you. There is no one on earth who loves you that much. There is no one who loves you with absolutely no conditions that you can turn on his back. You can reject his ways. You can want nothing to do with him. And he is in heaven declaring over your life, I love you. That's good news. You don't get that at work. Your spouse is even incapable of that love. But God loves you. While you were a sinner, Christ was nailed to a cross for you. God, God was pursuing Rahab. And can I tell you, God has never stopped pursuing your heart. 
When you were running from him, God was pursuing you. If some of you here are new to faith, you're new to church, can I tell you, God has sent me here to to remind you that God has been pursuing you because he loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not upset with you. He's not angry with you. He's not holding your sin over your head. No, he says, yeah, that sin you did, I nailed it to my son on the cross. Why? Because I love you. It reminded me back when I was pursuing Christina before we got married. Uh, We had met at the gym And uh, I I started to, how I pursued her initially is I would invite her to grab a smoothie after we worked out. I thought that was a a natural movement. So we, uh, I was like, you need protein. Let's go get a smoothie together. Will you marry me? No, don't do that. That's creepy. That's creepy. Um, And uh, and then we would work out together. And then I invited her over to my house, went for, we lived near the beach. We'd walk on the beach and. I made her uh, dinner and all of these. I, I was pursuing her hard. Listen, I am not the most gifted nor best looking, but I am persistent. I'll tell you what, I will outlast anyone at anything. Like, I'm, I am a persistent man. Ask Christina. And I, I was like, I am not giving up. Come on, I'm like a dog on a bone. Like, I am not giving up. And I, I was pursuing her hard. And then one night, I came from my community group, you know, all fired up with my friends, you know, just had a great time. And I get that call, and I, and I, hear, I hear the word nobody wants to hear, the F word. Let's be friends. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's what we were anyway, right? That's, that's all, you know, yeah, let's be friends. I was like, you might be friends now, but you're going to be Mrs. later. Come on, somebody. Because I ain't going to stop, okay? Your boy's persistent. So I kept pursuing her. And now, let me just say this, that in July of this year, we celebrate 11 years. Persistence pays off. Come on. Somebody's write this down. You don't got to be the best at what you do or the best looking. Just be the most persistent. Just outlast other people, okay? That's a life principle. Just outlast everyone else. Um, but can I tell you, my pursuit of Christina pales in comparison to God's pursuit of you. In the same way I never gave up, can I say, God never gives up on you. God never gives up on me. And that's the good news of the gospel. But then I love this because God, 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 God pursues us. And he, what I love is, 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 is Rahab, she then hides these men up in a hidden room. Now, here's what we would have known about Rahab. This hidden room was probably where she had hid men before. Probably men who did not want to be caught being in her presence, being in her home. But here's what I love is that God takes a room that probably was a room where there was great wickedness done, and he uses it as a tool of righteousness. A room that where there was a lot of exercising of the will of the flesh that is now being used to exercise the will of God. See, God knew what he was doing. He was like, don't use the, 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 the living room. Don't use the family room. Come on, don't use the den. Take them to the hidden room because I want to show you I will take what the enemy meant for evil and I will turn it for good. I will take what was once meant for wickedness and I will turn it for righteousness. And that's what we see in this moment, that, that, that God takes this out of her life. In fact, we even see uh, later another aspect of her life that God redeems as she lays out the scarlet cord to let them know where she lived so they would rescue, save her and her family. And that scarlet cord, again, would have been used so men could easily enter and escape her household. God is in the business. See, God will often, that, that very thing, maybe some poor decisions you made in your life, 
maybe that, the, the, those areas of, of sin where you struggled, those, those, those failures in your life, sometimes the very thing that we're most embarrassed by, God's like, yeah, I actually want to use that. I want to work through that because God will redeem your past. He will give purpose to your past mistakes. He will also give purpose to your pain. I remember some years ago, I was, when I came to, in a relationship with Christ, and um, I was probably about three months into following Jesus. And I'll never forget, I was serving on our dream team uh, at the church I was a part of, and I was praying with, having a conversation and praying with someone after service. And in the midst of our conversation, he began to share with me what he was walking through. He began to share with me some of the mistakes he had made, how he was feeling depressed, how he was medicating with certain things, how he was engaging in certain behaviors that were away from God. And as he was sharing these things, all of a sudden it hit me. The very thing he's been walking through right now, God actually rescued me from about four months ago. And here's a thought I had. Well, I can't tell him that I had the same struggles because then what will he think of me? Like, what's he going to think of me if, I, like, like, if I'm like, yeah, hey, three months ago, I was getting smashed at the bar too. What will he think of me? Like, I need to be holy now. Like, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. I need to have it all together. He can't know about that. And in that moment, I felt the Spirit of God say, hey, Jeremy, never be embarrassed by what I have done in your life. This is my story, not your story. And can I tell you, as I began to share my story with him about things that I had done and how God had been healing me and freeing me of some of those things, tears began to come down his face and the spirit of God began to minister to him. Can I tell you, listen, never be embarrassed by what God has done. Some of you are embarrassed that you've walked through a divorce, that you had a struggle with an addiction, that you had this area of sin. Can I tell you, oftentimes God wants to keep you silent of your biggest mistakes because he can take your biggest mistakes and turn it into ministry. And we can be careful. If we're not careful in church, we can come and we can think, oh, now that I'm in church, I got to act real holy like I never sinned in my life. Praise the Lord. How are you doing? I'm blessed and highly favored. Never had a bad day my whole life. Everything's great. Can I tell you, the church is not about being perfect. We're not a gathering of perfect people. We're a gathering of broken people who serve a perfect God. Listen, if you didn't have any sin, you'd have no need for a savior. This isn't a self-help club. Like, let's all get better together. No, it's like, I am broken, and I need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. So every single day, I surrender to him. Every Sunday, I gather to worship him and lift up him. And that's the power of the church. And what people need are not places where everyone's like, man, I'm great. My marriage is great. I never have a bad day. I have no problems. I've never had any issues. They need a place where they can come in and say, man, I got some stuff. I had some struggles. I've made some mistakes. I've really messed up. Because you know what oftentimes you'll, you'll hear on the other side? Me too. Can I tell you, all of a sudden, that's where the healing takes place. Listen, people may be impressed by your trophies, but they are healed by your scars. They're healed by your pain. They're healed by the past mistakes you've had. So I want Catalyst to always be a place where people can come and be open and vulnerable and transparent. And people, won't, we won't be like, oh, you did what? I can't believe that. But how many know church can be like that sometimes? And we as the people of God have to actively work against that happening because we can naturally slide into this form of self-righteousness. And you know who Jesus was the hardest on in scripture? Self-righteous people. Do you know he was the most gentle with? People who knew God, I'm broken. I need you. 
That's the ones you were most gentle with, church. That wasn't even in my notes. Come on, I was free. I was from the Lord. I was for somebody. 2 Corinthians 1, 4, Paul says this. He comforts us in all of our troubles so we can comfort others. When they are troubled, he will give us the same. He will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Listen, God will give you purpose to your pain. Can, can I encourage someone? Listen, your greatest ministry, or sorry, your greatest misery can actually become your greatest ministry if you'll give it over to God. You may be thinking to yourself the pain that you have, maybe of a divorce you walked through, maybe of your child who has a disability, maybe of a chronic pain you're dealing with. Can I tell you, if you allow God to work through your misery, it can be ministry for somebody else. If you'll surrender that, that pain over to him. I'll never forget a couple that I had dinner with years ago. They had been trying to have a child for 10 years. 10 years struggled with infertility. And there was, there was really no hope on a practical level for them at that point. And they had been going to these different infertility support groups. And they were sharing the pain. The pain was real. And sometimes, listen, just to be, just to be transparent, sometimes the pain remains. Sometimes the pain just stays there, even though you're trying to, you, sometimes you just don't move on from the pain. It just, and it, it was still there for this couple, 10 years in. But they said, you know what? We have seen God moving through it because we go to these support groups, and there are people in our support groups that we're able to pray with that we're able to encourage, that we're able to share our hope because they don't have the strength that we have in Christ and we're able to offer that to other people. What do they do? They allow God to put purpose on their pain. They allow God to put purpose on their pain. Here's number two. So first is allow God to redeem your past. Second is to pursue God above all else. What's interesting is that Rahab, she, um, these men come in and in verse 11, she begins to recall all of the, the ways that God had been with them. And then she declares her allegiance to God. Now, here's why this is significant. Because at that time in Jericho, Jericho was God. Like, like your allegiance was primarily to, to Jericho. That, that above all else, you defended Jericho. Like, you protected Jericho. She was a Canaanite woman who was in Jericho. And here she is professing her, her love, her allegiance to God at the extent that she is forsaking Jericho. Now, this is, if you would have been in this moment culturally, this is powerful. This, is, this would have been groundbreaking because this Canaanite woman is helping Israelites destroy her city. And, and, and in that moment, she's showing that her identity was in God, no longer in Jericho. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with having national pride. There's nothing wrong with having pride in any part of our identity whether it's ethnicity or it's gender or it's whatever. But it's when that pride becomes the main thing, it becomes a destructive thing. And in this moment, she declares her allegiance to God. You know, we live in a culture, if we're not careful, there it was Jericho was the, the idol, was the little G God that people worshipped. And in our own country, we have our own idols. We have our own identities that we, if we're not careful, we can latch ourselves onto that are not God. A common one in Western culture is work. On a side note, you know, here's how you can, you can discover what you truly worship and what you truly identify with. What, what is it in your life you are most willing to sacrifice for? Like, here's how you can know, for example, if, if work, and I, I'm a, work was an idol I struggled with in the past. And here's how you can know because I've been there. You sacrifice uh, relationships, physical health, 
time with God, all for work success. In our Western culture, we glorify that, right? We're like, oh, you're going to work more? That's great, right? Like, no one's going to say, hey, stop working. But you know, another, another, another identity in our culture that I think has even hijacked and I think, I think affected the witness of the church in America is, is politics. In fact, one of the, the common questions I got when I, we planted the church was, are you a conservative church? Or are you a liberal church? And neither of those two terms are found anywhere in Scripture out of the mouth of Jesus. I said, we're building the church of Jesus. Uh, in his church, there's no conservative church or no liberal church. There's a church of Jesus. And let me just say this. If you follow the ways of Jesus, it will put you at odds with both the Democrat and Republican Party on a number of issues. And the Green Party. And whatever else party. Can I tell you, we don't worship the elephant or the donkey. We worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Therefore, there will be times, and there should be times as a follower of Jesus, where we feel a rub with whatever. I'm not saying you don't have a party. I'm not saying you don't vote. But what I'm saying is you're loyal mostly to King Jesus. It's getting quiet in this church. It's okay. I'm going to come off your toes now. There's power when we, when we unify under Christ. I, 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 think, I think that can be one of the most. God's word says this, that where there's unity, God commands a blessing. I think if we of the church can stop, we can put away our ideologies and stop spewing the lines coming from political parties, then I think perhaps, God, it will restore a blessing on the church that we haven't seen. That we'll see God's mission in the earth move in ways because I think our, our world is actually longing for something different than what we've seen over the recent years. All right, I'll move on, I'll move on. Paul said this way in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ, Jesus. We are one. Our identity in Christ should supersede all our other identities. But then what happens next is she trusts in God, mainly to these Israelites, because they, they leave. She sends them off. And she essentially is putting her trust in God through these men. And she declared her trust in God, her loyalty to God. You know, you know what's a test of whether you trust God? is if you can trust, trust God in people. Who is it, God, I trust you, but can you trust the God in your spouse? Can you trust God in your leader? Can you trust God with those areas of your life? She trusts the God in her, in these Israelite men as she sent them away. Reminds me of Psalm 37, verse 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pleasure. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. You know that word trust in verse 4? It literally means to fully rely upon. Anybody else remember maybe, maybe summer camp when you were a kid? Maybe, a, maybe an awkward work team building activity anybody ever did a trust fall trust falls come on it's like you just turn around and be like okay i'm gonna fall into the arms of people I've, i don't know right um which is kind of like a not so great event because you're trusting people you don't really know you should trust anyways uh but the whole idea is to build like the reason you trust is because you take away all of your leverage because you lean back like you have no more leverage physically to pull yourself back up once you're falling back and that word trust in verse 3, about Isaiah 37, it literally means to fully rely upon, to put your entire weight upon God. Here's what that means, is that, is that when you trust in the Lord, when you fully rely upon the Lord, you're saying, God, I trust you and your ways and your word and your timing and your methods above all else. Here's what that means. Anybody else here, you ever say, God, I trust you, but you have a plan B? 
Oh, just me. You're all holy. Okay. I have a plan B. I'll have a plan C, a plan D, and a plan D, D period two. You know, it's like I got like several plans. Okay, God, like I'm going to trust you for 14 days, but you don't come through. I got it. Anybody else? Like, God, I'm trusting you. I'm, I'm going to trust you to bring me a spouse. But if you don't, I know who I'm going to. You know, like, God, I'm trusting you. You're going to bring me that job. But if you don't, I'm going to work it my own way. What it means to fully rely is saying, God, I'm going to trust you for a spouse, period. I'm going to trust you for this promotion, period. It means you have, you have no plan B. You have no escape hatch. You have no, you have no, like, God, if you don't show up in my timing and in my way, I'm going to do it. It's to fully rely. Saying, God, and can I tell you what, what this requires? And I'm saying, it, this is not easy. If it was, we all wouldn't have plan Bs. It means every day you're getting up saying, God, I'm going to trust in your ways. God, help me to trust in your timing. God, I want to trust, but I don't feel like trusting. God, I want to keep waiting, but I don't want to wait. And then the word wait patiently. This, will, this kicked me in the gut this week, I'm, and I'm sorry. You're about to hear it. Wait patiently for him in verse 7. You know what that means? To labor in pain. Now, I have never actually given, had labor or delivered a child, but I have witnessed it. And my, upon my observation, it is painful. Um, so when I hear that, waiting patiently on God is sometimes painful. You know, a few weeks ago, we sung a song about waiting on God. And sometimes we can sing the song like, God, I'm going to wait on you. And then we're private. We're like, oh, God. Help! Jesus! All right, it's been three days, Lord. I'm done. All right, I just anybody else impatient? I'm impatient. I don't like to wait on the Lord. I don't. I don't at all. And the fact that He calls it labor and pain, like that's not even helpful. Like I would have been like, God, why can't waiting be enjoyable? You know. But waiting is, 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 it's like in Disney World, you know, when you go on, the, um, there's this ride, the Dumbo ride, Disney World. While you wait in line, there's like a playground you can, you can put your kids in. It's like awesome. Like, God, why can't wait like that? Like, while you're waiting for my will to be done, Jeremy, enjoy this. Like, but labor is in pain sometimes. And the, and, but there's a purpose to the waiting. Uh, Isaiah 40, 31 says this, that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The other day I went to the gym, and I saw a person at the gym doing a wall sit, um, which I, I did, couldn't see it from afar what they were doing, so it just looked like they were sitting. And I was like, why are they sitting at a gym? Anybody ever done a wall sit before? Um, which it doesn't look like much, right? It kind of looks like you're just like in a squat, like you're just like sitting, right? You're just... But if you know about wall sets, it's one of the best, like, kind of exercises you can do for your building your quadriceps. It works your quadriceps, your hamstring, your calves, your abdominals, your back. Basically, almost works your entire body. Like, it's an incredible. And here's what happens in a wall sit. Wall sit builds muscle. Wall sits build endurance. And wall sits burn calories. So it's, just, it's, it's, a, powerful, it's a powerful exercise because it does so many things. But you're literally waiting on the wall. Come on. And if you're like me back in the day in, in elementary school and middle school, come on, you'd like, you'd like cheat. You start edging up. Anybody else? Take the pressure off. 
Then like the coach sees you like, okay, sir, yes, I'm here. He, he's not looking, all right? I think it's painful. It looks like you're waiting, but there's something working under the surface. Can I tell you, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Can I tell you there's purpose in the waiting? And I'm not saying it's not going to be hard because wall sits are hard. And waiting on the Lord is hard. But can I tell you there's something being done in the sitting. Spiritually, you're building an endurance. Your faith is being built. Your character is being developed. And as a wall sit burns calories, when you're waiting on the Lord, sometimes the Lord's like, I want to burn off some unhealthy thought patterns. I want to burn off some habits that you've developed that are not good for you. I want to burn away some sin in your life because you can't take Take that sin with you into the next season that I have for you. So if you allow me, come on, dig deep into this waiting and allow me to take some things out of your life. Allow me to remove that relationship from your life because you can't bring him into this next season. I'm talking to somebody. Allow me to remove that thought pattern in your life because you can't think like that where I'm taking you and the will that I have for you and the purpose that I have for you. Allow me to build some character in you because what I have for you and the blessing I want to put on your life you need to build some integrity in the secret. You need some integrity in those private moments. There's purpose in the waiting. And when you get through the waiting and you experience the blessing of the waiting, you experience, oh God, you were present with me the entire time I was waiting. Then when you get through the waiting, you realize the waiting was actually a bigger blessing than the thing you were waiting for. That the waiting time, you look back and you say, oh, God, what you did in me was better than what you have for me. Come on, some of you are like, what you did in me while I was waiting is better than the husband you brought me. Come on, that's for somebody. <laughs> Don't look at him. You're like, you're okay. The waiting was better. <laughs> There's purpose in the waiting. Can I, can I encourage somebody? Keep waiting. And listen, don't wait by yourself. You know, it's hard. When you go to a waiting room, that's why when you go like, to an emergency room, or you bring someone with you. Because waiting by yourself is horrible. You need somebody to be around with you that can encourage you. Hey, keep waiting. Hey, keep trusting. Hey, don't go to plan B. Keep holding on. Keep diving into his word. Keep praying. Keep giving. Keep serving. Keep worshiping. Keep leaning into the Lord. You need others to encourage you along the way. Here's the last and final point. That's put your faith in action. So we see that she allows God to redeem her past. She pursues God wholeheartedly, and she puts her faith into action. They, the Israelite men asked her to do three things. Here's where, where Rahab's vocalization of her loyalty to God is put to the test, because they say to her, I want you to do three things. I want you to uh, gather your family in your home, because she, she asked them, would you rescue, would you save my family? Gather them in your home. Tell no one that we were here. And then lastly is leave the scarlet cord dangling from your window. She says in verse 21, let it be as you say. She did exactly what they said. She put her faith to the test. It reminds me of James 2 where James says this, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister with no food or clothing and say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now, James is not contradicting the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul says that we are justified, we are saved by grace through faith. What he was saying is that if you have true faith, it should bear fruit in your life. 
if you have true faith, then it should, it should show. It's like this. It's not just getting the gym membership. It's going to the gym and getting under the squat rack. It's going to the gym and getting on the elliptical. It's actually doing the work. This may not be encouraging to you, but, but this is the truth. Um, as a follower of Christ, actually Sunday mornings and hearing a word and even worshiping together is probably one of the more easier parts of our faith. It's actually leaving here. And this week, when again you're tested because you're finding yourself single and you're struggling with it, and you're having to wait. When you find yourself still in that job that you're waiting on God to deliver you from because you, you feel like he gave you a word that you're, and you're still waiting. It, it's, it's, it's on Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. It, it's on Thursday at 9.30 at night when you're struggling. It, it, that, that's where we put it into practice. James says if you just hear the word but don't put it into practice, you're like a person who looks in the mirror but you forgot what you look like. But actually, the power is putting it into practice. In James 2.25, he's, I love this, he refers to Rahab. He's in the same, same way. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's about putting into action. Today, in fact, church, with, with, with one child in our partnership, we have an opportunity to put our faith into action. Uh, to put our faith by, by coming alongside and supporting a child and their family uh, that will leave an impact generationally and for eternity um, in an area of our world. Um, in fact, we're, we're partnering with Haiti. Um, do you know Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere? Um, and that, that our money there uh, does so much. Um, and we have an opportunity to put our faith into action and in being generous today. But he refers to Rahab and how Rahab was obedient. And I want to close with this. This is my final scripture in Joshua 6. It says this in verse 23. Sorry, I was not totally truthful. I have two more scriptures. But the young man who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. We're going to come back to that. They put her in place outside the camp. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men, Joshua, and sent this as spies to Jericho, and she lived among the Israelites to this day. Here's what caught me as I was studying this passage this week. So, so, so Rahab put her life on the line for the Israelites. They conquered Jericho because of Rahab. Um, also, on a, on, a, on a side note, her, her house um, was actually built into the wall of Jericho. And if you know the story... In Joshua 6, when they were marching around the walls of Jericho, the walls came down. Can you imagine what was going, th- going internally in Rahab as the walls began to come down around her and her wall stood? The faithfulness of God. But she gets rescued. They pull her out and they place her outside the camp. And as I dove into this, it, it, it kind of bothered me because I'm like, okay, why wasn't she placed in the camp? And here's what... Uh, I found out because she was a Canaanite woman and there was an ethnic tension, she could not come into the camp with the Israelites because she was deemed, uh, it would have made the place unclean. They had this negative perception of her as a Canaanite woman. The woman who saved them. The woman who gave them the promised land. They said outside the camp. And it bothered me. 
But then I had this thought. Have you ever done the right thing? Have you ever did what God's word says to do? And you don't feel like you saw the blessing on earth? You ever been like, God, I did everything right. Like, why, why did I get overlooked for the promotion? God, God I, I did what you asked me to do, and things haven't gotten better in my marriage. But here's what, what struck me in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. This is my final scripture, where it's talking about the people of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11, including Rahab, says this. All of these people, including Rahab, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive. They did not receive. Now, this is hard in our Western culture because, can we be honest? I want all the blessings to yesterday, right? Like, I might give it all now, Lord. And they did not experience the blessings. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they were foreigners and strangers on this earth. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And here's how I want you to catch this, church. Rahab's life is so significant, not just because she saved her family, not just because she helped deliver the promised land into Jericho, but Rahab eventually married a man named Salmon, who was an Israelite. Her and Salmon gave birth to a man named Boaz. If you were here last week, you know that man. Boaz married a woman named Ruth. It also sees why Boaz's mother was a Canaanite, which shows why he had a heart for a Moabite woman. Boaz and, Mo- and Ruth give birth to Obed. Obed gives, and his wife give birth to Jesse. Jesse and his wife give birth to David. From the lineage of David came Jesus. But, Ruth, but, but Rahab never saw that. Rahab didn't know on earth that her name would be written on Matthew 1.5 under the lineage of Jesus. And it would say in the lineage of Jesus is Rahab the prostitute. She didn't see that. Even though she obeyed God on earth, she still faced ethnic tension. But she wasn't living for this earth. And I want you to catch this, church. Here's We as followers of Jesus, we don't live for the blessings on this earth. We don't live for the promotion. We don't live for the perfect marriage. We don't live for the blessing on earth. We live fixed on heaven. We live our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Why? Because we serve a God who is a generational God. We serve a God who is a God of eternity. And I thank God that Rahab had enough faith to say, I'm not living for the acceptance of the Israelites. I'm living for the acceptance of my king. And because of her obedience, she didn't just save her family's life physically. It came through her life was Jesus, which brought salvation to all of humanity. And we see in in, in Rahab's life the power of simple obedience. Listen, some of you, when God asks you to do something, when you read something in his word, when he brings something to mind, something for you to do, something for you to obey, can I tell you, never undervalue the significance of what he's asking you to do because Rahab simply laid out a scarlet cord. It brought salvation for all of the earth. Here's what we're gonna do next, church. Before we close our service, um, I want to talk about a way for you to, to, to have an opportunity to obey God today. Please hear this. As always, there's never any pressure. Uh, it's always an opportunity. And anytime with an opportunity to be generous, we always say to pray and ask God how he would have for you to give or how we'd have for you to sponsor in this, in this case. Um, and I just want to invite my friend Brandon up, and we're going to share just briefly 
uh, about one child uh, before we close our service today. Uh, but before we do that, I want you to catch out catch this quick video uh, by a young man named Lionel and the impact that sponsorship had on his life. Dear God, this is Lionel from Zimbabwe. Thank you for always listening to my prayers. I know you hear me, and I know you love me. We don't have much, and life can be very difficult where we live. But I want to thank you for helping my mom and me. When you brought one child matters into our community a few years ago, it changed everything. They gave me food, good clothes to wear, and they helped me in school. When I am there, I learn more about you, that you love me, and that you have a special purpose for my life. I'm learning so much, and now I have so many friends. I am no longer shy or afraid. But the best thing of all is that you gave me a sponsor in America that loves me. She even sends me pictures of her and her family. And I love reading her letters. They always make me smile. She cares for me and my mom and she's always praying for us. She may live very far away, but she is always in my heart. I love her. Today I sent a letter to her and included a drawing of my plane. It is so fast and can fly very far. And this is good because one day I want to be a pilot so that I can fly all the one child matters children with me to meet our sponsors. We want to tell them thank you and show them they are changing the world. Please God, can you help my dream come true? my friend Brandon here who is with One Child and I want to share a little bit about how him and I got connected Uh, last year right before the pandemic uh, literally end of February the uh, we went on a trip to Nicaragua uh, in north of Hinoteca if you're familiar with that area and were able to see the work that One Child was doing and uh, honestly I left um, inspired, uh, moved. Um, it, it was incredible to see the work. Um, it's, it's one thing to hear about it. It's a whole other thing to see it with your eyes and to see uh, the difference they're truly making. And uh, we, we visited different what they call hope centers, which we'll share more about, uh, which essentially are local churches uh, in, the, in these communities 
So for us, we are partnering with an area, the north coast of Haiti, um, uh, over 10 different Hope Centers there, which are different churches. Uh, They call them Hope Centers because you're going to hear more about all they do in these communities and to see how the difference they were making uh, tangibly um, and how the the, the children and families were being impacted by what they, they did. And what I loved about, a number of things I love about One Child, because this is our first time ever doing anything like this as a church, if you've been around Catalyst, um, because we, we, we do a, a job of, of vetting those who we want to bring before you as, hey, these are organizations we are partnering with. And there's a number of things I loved about One Child. Uh, and one is that they, they, they really empower local pastors and these local community leaders in the communities. It's all locally focused. And really, stateside, we come alongside them and provide support uh, financially that goes so far um, to really help these pastors, these community leaders to love the children, love the families uh, in these communities. Uh, and seeing that firsthand was, was incredibly impactful. Um, I'll also say this on a different note. I, I love the fact, the integrity in which the one child leads, um, even you can see on their website, their financials are very transparent. Um, and they have uh, ECFA, which is one of the highest uh, accreditation financially a nonprofit can have. They have. Um, and I love the fact they do things with excellence, with compassion and integrity. Um, and again, for me, seeing the impact firsthand uh, was, was incredible. And, you know, you, you probably have seen the banner outside the, of the vision statement of love God, love people, make a difference. And us, personally, we can make a difference here in the D.C. area, personally. Um, but I love that through partnerships, like with One Child, Catalyst Church can make a difference in Haiti, like a real, tangible difference. Uh, and we can have Catalyst Haiti. Uh, but it really is that level of partnership. And then one last thing I'll say is, is this is a long-term partnership. It's, it's not a, a one-and-done uh, it's something that, uh, and he'll share more about a long-term relationship, uh, as well as in the future, we as a church um, can even take trips to see firsthand, to meet the children and the families that we've been able to support uh, over time. So, I, I just need, I just need, to, I just need to take you on the road. I mean, my, <laughs> I, just, I don't even uh, need to say anything. You just did it. It's great. So, so t- tell us more about about one child, and and really, uh, I mean, I know you all do. So much in, in the communities, um, a number of things, and you, and you kind of localize it, whatever the community needs. Mm-hmm. So could you share more about that, kind of the model around it, and really even the name One Child? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we started 60 years ago uh, as an orphanage in India. Actually, it was a couple that um, just had a heart, and they began this work. And over the course of 60 years, uh, we have transformed to be a child development ministry. We work in 14 countries all over the world, and, and through the course of time, we've had some different names. Mission of Mercy is uh, one of the names that we had, and then Ch- One Child Matters, as you saw in the video, and then we just kind of condensed that to One Child. And really, the the, the, the focus of that is the idea that, um, I don't know if you're this way, I'm, I can be this way, and it's the fact that when you think about global poverty, when you think about food shortages and food scarcity and water diseases and illnesses, and you think about global poverty and starvation and the millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people that are impacted in that covering of global poverty, it's overwhelming. 
Like, I get overwhelmed when I just think about it. And when I get overwhelmed, like, when I walk into my house and my, it's just a mess and the kitchen's a mess and the living room's a mess and my room's a mess, I'm, I'm like, I become overwhelmed. I just go binge watch Netflix for a while, hoping that it just all disappears, right? Um, and that's kind of what happens when we become overwhelmed with global poverty is we become, we feel immobilized. We don't feel like we can contribute much. Like, how are we going to chip away at that? How am I in my life in this time going to ever make a difference upon millions upon millions, right? And so what happens because we become overwhelmed, become immobilized, and we don't move, and what we want to do is create the, the reality that we can make a difference. And maybe we won't be able to impact everybody, but we can certainly make a difference in the life of somebody, of one child. And if we can make the life change in one child happen, then we do impact generations. In fact, I didn't share this earlier, but there's a story of a young man, Marcus. He was in our program in India, and he had to, the decision. He was being recruited off the streets to go and join uh, some gangs to be able to help provide for his life and his future and his family. Well, at least that's the story he was told. Uh, or he could be a part of the program with one child, and so he chose the one-child path. And because of that, he's a, he's a music manager now, and, and one of the statements he made was, because of the opportunities that I had in my life, the generations after me will never have to know what I knew. They'll never have to know what my family knew, my parents and my grandparents knew, because now forever after me, generations will be changed and impacted. And so the way you make a difference in that overwhelming number is you start with one, because it's generational and it changes things. And so we work in 14 countries all over the world. Uh, we work, like you said, through local churches. And where we can't work through a local church, we work through schools. And we refer to those places as hope centers. And these are in difficult places. They're in hard places. Uh, it can be hard because of the physical poverty mentioned earlier. It can be hard because of spiritual poverty. Uh, or it just could be hard because it's literally physically difficult to get to. And other people say, eh, it's not worth it. And we just kind of raise our hand and say, we'll find a way. And so we work in these difficult areas, and we work through churches, and we refer to them as hope centers. And we do that because we want the church to be, like Scripture says, a city on a hill. And we want Jesus to be the hero of their story. Look, one child is not the hero of their story. In fact, most children don't even know who one child is. But they get to know who Jesus is. And they get to know that he's really the author and finisher of their life and, and that they have a purpose in their life. And so uh, we partner with churches like Catalyst. And one of the things that we do that's really unique in what we do is we partner in specific areas so that all the kids come from the same place. So it's not 14 countries all over the world that are being sponsored today. It's, it's one country and one community where all the kids are coming from. So like you mentioned, you can develop a long-term vision strategy. So it's not an event. It's not like we're just here and then we'll be gone. It's like, no, we're, this is your thing. This is Catalyst Church. This is the community you guys are supporting. We're coming alongside you as you come alongside these pastors uh, and it gets to be opportunities to not just uh, sponsor a child, but to go see that child as well. And so uh, a little bit about who we are is just we exist to see children thrive. I love that. And it, it was incredible to see. Um, there, I remember two particular stories from our trip in Nicaragua that stood out to me was, one was we were in a, a town where, um, if I remember correctly, the Hope Center was like the only place kids earned an education, got any education at all. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was the same place where they were getting mosquito nets, and yeah. it was very rural. They had, they had, um, and they had, because of the water, which the, the Hope Center, the local church was working on getting clean water, like they were, they were bathing in the river. Mm -hmm. And I remember meeting yep. a little girl, um, Hannah's age, who had like a skin disease. Mm. And the pastor was like, you know, and you could see the vision and the hope that he had of like, we are working 
to get these kids clean water. And you could just see, like, it was just amazing to see all of the things from mosquito nets that they, did, they would not have had to education to uh, getting treatment, health care in these communities that, like he said, hard to reach. Like, I mean, we probably drove for like three hours yeah, yeah. into very, very rural. And I think just to see that, um, again, for me coming back, I was like, this is something we, I want us to be a part of. And, and I love the one child focus. But even as we were talking, I thought to myself, the beautiful thing, even for us as a church, um, we sponsor and my family and I have already decided we're sponsoring a child is that when we all sponsor a child, the difference we can make together to, mm-hmm. uh, to see these communities and the way that we're able to, to make a difference um, here in, in a tangible way um, and an eternal way is just, it's just incredible. Um, so tell us about, so kind of a, as far as next step with one child and we see kind of the opportunity here, what's that look like? And maybe even share a little more about, I love the emphasis on the relationship side of it. Mm-hmm. Could you share more about that and like kind of what sponsorship practically looks like? Yeah, so um, there's a great quote out there, um, and I, I don't quote me on who quoted it, <laughs> but it says basically, if you can take a picture of it, then that's not poverty. But poverty is really the whisper and the wind in the ear of that child that they'll never be enough. And, and poverty, true poverty, is really the idea that my life is what it is and it's never going to change. It was what it was for my family, my parents, my grandparents, and generations before me, and this is my life. It's not going to be different. And what we do when we come alongside in the program is we want to be a louder voice that tells the child the truth, that they have a purpose, God has a plan, there's destiny, there's dignity to their life, and it's not, this is not what your life has to be. It just is what it might be right now, but there's so much more. And the way we do that it's through those local churches, those pastors, those communities, those child champions, the people who love on the kids. We offer uh, medical care, so immunizations, uh, checkups, if there's dental work that needs to be done, immunizations, things like that. Uh, there's uh, nutritional meals that are being fed, so not just something to like fill their belly so that they feel full, but actually something that provides nutritional value when they come to this program. And so, you know, meal programs here are important. Just think meal programs where you don't even have access to grocery stores and pantries all the time. It's so much more important. Uh, we have the opportunity through that to give them educational support, as you mentioned, to have books, to have edu- uh, uniforms and tutoring and the ability to go to get an education so you can make decisions for your future. And they're surrounded by people who just, like I said, who are watching over them, care for them, listen to them. That's one of the biggest differences in our program is that we listen to the child to see if things are being developed in their life and how they're being developed in their life. And then the most important one, probably most of all, is that they also get to hear about Jesus, right? They get to hear the gospel. They get to hear that God has a love for them and a purpose and that he died for them. He, he loves them so much that he went to this thing called the cross for them. And so all of these tangible benefits, when a child comes to a Hope Center, all these tangible benefits, they also produce some real intangible things. And you heard it when you saw Lionel's video, it produces hopes and dreams. It produces the hope that tomorrow can be different, so that silencing that voice that you're only going to be this, hope begins to develop, that tomorrow can be different, and then they begin to dream about who they can can become, who, who they can become in that tomorrow. So Lionel, his dream was to be a pilot. He wants to fly all the one-child children, right, to see their sponsors. And guess what? He has the right to dream that. And he may become a pilot because he has the opportunity and access to get education to chase that dream. And so when a child gets to be a part of a Hope Center, 
it's super powerful. And, and honestly, I mean, you don't know this because you weren't there, but just earlier I was talking to one of your uh, uh, volunteers or dream team members, um, and she was telling me that where she grew up with, this was her story. She wasn't a sponsored child, but she grew up in a place where she knew starvation. She knew what it was like to be a child, to carry the worries of, of what is, are we going to eat today? She grew up in a country where she experienced this firsthand. And so she signed up to sponsor a child because she says, I know what this is like, and I know the difference that this makes, and I want to be a part of this. And so the reality is like, when you're a child, what a Hope Center does is it allows you to be a kid, right? The worries of the world, the trying to be a secondary caregiver, uh, dealing with things that most of us would say children probably shouldn't have to deal with. Like you just get to come and be a kid and play with your friends and laugh and dream and hope. And, and that's why we exist. That's what it means to exist so that kids would thrive. Uh, and so we get to do that. The Hope Center does that. And sponsorship is what fuels that. And the cost of sponsorship is $39 a month. And it provides all those benefits that I mentioned earlier. And this is what a sponsorship profile looks like. It's got uh, their gender, their name, their, their birth date, right? Uh, it's got uh, a story about them, kind of like who they are and a little bit more about their history. And then this inside flap is an opportunity where you get to say yes and, and fill that out. And this first part, it says it's $39 a month. And so that's what I just talked about. That's the cost of sponsorship. There's another opportunity for 45 and really that extra $6 supports what we call the unsponsored children's fund. So when we register a child into the program, we never remove them. And so, but often, what can often happen is maybe a sponsor uh, says, hey, I can't sponsor anymore because sponsorship is however long you're able. And so somebody says, hey, I can't sponsor. Well, we don't remove that child from the program. We just try to find them a new sponsor. And until we can do that, we have a fund that helps float them until we can find that new sponsor for them. Uh, and so once you fill this part out, it's perforated. You'd hand it to me, tear it off, hand it to me, and then you can take this profile home and the beautiful thing is that uh, you don't take this profile home until you fill that out um, so that Nesky here, who I have with me, doesn't get lost, uh, but we can keep track of him and make sure that he is actually attached to a sponsor. And, and so, like you said, that's the cost of sponsorship. But the power of sponsorship is really the most beautiful part, and that's the relationship. And, and what we didn't have time to show you today is actually the follow-up video we did to Lionel's story, and that's where his, his sponsor, Wanda, actually gets to meet Lionel. And she gets to tell her side of it. And her side of it was that she was uh, at a church service, much like you are right now, and she was going through a season of her life where she felt alone, and she said, you know what, I, I think I, I want to sponsor a child. And through the years of sponsoring Lionel, she wrote him letters, she sent him photos, she talked to him, she prayed for him, she talked to her family about him. In fact, he began to call her grandmother, she referred to him as her grandchild, um, and 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 her actual grandchildren would refer to Lionel as their sibling, and that's how he referred to them, his sister, his grandmother. They had such a connection, such a relational connection, that it not only impacted his life, but it impacted her life. And that's the power of what sponsorship really is. Yeah, there's a cost to it, and that cost is medical care, educational support, all those great things, but the beauty and the power of it is relationship. It's praying for a child. It's integrating somebody else's story into your story the way that Jesus did. He integrated his story into our story, and we can never repay him. And guess what? These kids probably will never be able to repay you. But relationally, we can enter in and say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I want to hear about your life. 
In fact, kids will run. We've been to, we've been to countries and, and centers where kids run two miles back home to grab letters from their sponsors to show it to people to say, I have a sponsor. I have somebody who's writing me and has a relationship with me. And so all that being said is that there is a cost and there is a power to sponsorship. And the program that the kids receive allows them to have opportunities to thrive. And we get to be a part of that. And I think that's really an incredible thing. And really, you get to be a part of that in a specific place in Haiti as a church, you get to say, we're going to invest in this community, dream with these pastors, pray for these pastors, come alongside these pastors, and we're going to support kids to see them thrive in this life. Yeah. That's incredible. So here in Bethesda, um, as Brandon said, this is important with these profiles um, to not just take one and take it home to think about, <laughs> but to, to make sure you fill it out because we want to make sure Nesky gets someone. Yes. Um, yes. If you are watching online, there's a link uh, to some online profiles in the uh, information section of the stream that you can also click on. Um, and uh, we have, um, I think, a, a. I think there's a. I think if I counted right, there's a. I think 11 uh, profiles. Uh, the first service responded really great, and then yeah. we have 11 out there. And if you have any uh, specific questions or any additional questions, I'm going to be out there. So feel free to come by. And if you do have questions or thoughts or stories you want to share, I'm out there to hear them and listen and, and provide some additional feedback if need be. Um, but I'll just kind of leave you guys with this. Every, uh, I want you to pray about this. I want you to ask God about this. I want you to know that that's, you know, obviously like a good step to take. Um, and you're probably going to think I'm biased because I'm with one child. But I just happen to think uh, when I read scripture, when I see Jesus, he's just always on the side of kids. He's always on the side of the widow, the orphan and children, and he rebukes his disciples and other people way before he ever addresses a child and says, no. He's just always on their side, and so I just think I know the heartbeat of God for the widow, the orphan, and children, and, uh, and I just say, hey, whatever that looks like for you, pray about it, uh, and I'll be out there to help you if you have questions, uh, and I just think it's powerful, and thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me be up here to represent kids who are in difficult places. Thank you for letting me be an advocate for them and to just share their story with you today. Thank you, Brandon.